Chapter 2 Barcelona, the Bundesbank Park, and the Art of the Kiss After the long, cold, dark winter, God smiled upon me when I was told that I would be going with my family on a bus tour to Spain for spring break. It would also be the notorious senior trip, something that everyone wanted to be in on. Marin and I were to share a room, where I would learn just how horrible it was to have too much wine, and then endure a two-hour-long bus trip back to the hotel. I hadn't learned yet how to handle alcohol, and it was sheer hell. My hair was long and strawberry blonde for the trip to Spain, and there were seniors, lots of them, throwing epic senior parties. One of the senior girls took me under her wing after someone had dared to call me a lightweight, and I chugged down a whole mug full of German Pilsner beer to prove them wrong. Meanwhile, one of the senior boys by the name of Jensen had his eye on me. This appealed to me because the boy that I had loved in New Orleans shared the same name. I ended up in the bathroom of the party where I had chugged the beer with Chelsea Monroe, a senior angel, tending to me and holding my hair back as I hurled. She sweetly patted my brow with a cool towel and helped me to get cleaned up. I rinsed my mouth out a half dozen times to get rid of the bitter taste because there was that boy named Jensen waiting for me in the other room and he wanted to kiss me. I was a strict virgin. However, I loved to French kiss and we did a lot of that. It was all above board. There was no grabbing or copping feels. When the party started to die down, a small group of us went for a walk on the beach in beautiful Barcelona. Jensen and I sat down on the sand, stargazing, and explored soft, wet kisses together. This we did in spite of my looming hangover. The seniors had cut me off from any more beer at the party. I felt alive with each wave that rolled into the shore, the wind in my hair, and a boy by my side. With his arms sweetly around my waist, I thought, I could get used to this feeling. I spent the rest of the trip entangled with this boy, who treated me extremely well, and learning poorly at best how to handle my liquor. My parents were unaware that I drank at the party and allowed me to have wine with dinner the next night because in Spain that was accepted. They were being encouraged to let me find my own limits by some of the other parents who knew that alcohol was available in Germany from the moment that we arrived. All of the parents understood that their children were going to have to learn to manage the consumption of alcohol responsibly, which I did eventually. Most of the kids took public transportation to get around, so there was generally no concern over drinking and driving. The drinking age was 16, 
but I passed for that everywhere that I went, and it was not strictly enforced. In my defense, I felt completely miserable, isolated, and alone, spending some time throwing up because I wanted to escape that feeling wasn't the worst trade-off that I could imagine. However, I was too smart to continue that course of action for too long. So I took a step back from alcohol and began to conservatively explore my other options. By the last day of the senior trip, I was feeling somewhat down because my senior had decided that he couldn't be with me for reasons that he would not reveal except to Marin's younger brother, Mike. I asked Mike how Jensen felt about me and why he wouldn't talk to me about it. He really cares about you, and that's all I can say. I took an oath. Mike looked solemnly at me. I had to let it go with relative ease. It was sweet, but there was no real chance for love there, and that is what I was looking for the love of my life. In the end, it was a heartfelt fling with an older boy who probably didn't want to be with me because I was a virgin. I could live with that. After returning from the trip to Spain one fine spring day, the sun was shining and the sky was blue, a rarity of grand proportions in Frankfurt. I donned the white woven dress that I bought in Barcelona and went to the middle school smoker's hangout. Everybody there was feeling the fever. I was talking about skipping school and going somewhere really cool. The only thing was, I still didn't have a very clear idea of the coolest place to go. So I was open to suggestions. Suddenly... There I was with my long, strawberry-blonde hair, in my white dress from Spain, surrounded by 7th and 8th graders who absolutely wanted to accompany me on the quest for adventure. That is how I initially met Hans, a former German child star who attended school with me. We were in a couple of classes together, and he would later become a friend that would always steer me clear of consuming any German alcohol that he knew would make me ill, particularly apfelkorn. There were four boys that decided that they would go with me on my big adventure. One claimed to know the way to a place that I had been once that was much like a holy land for the freaks. It was called the Bundesbank a beautiful park next to an actual bank, one of the biggest in Frankfurt. I had vague memories of being there once at dusk the previous summer after I arrived and seeing a boy who caught my eye as he tumbled down the grassy hill playing with a girl. So I reluctantly agreed to allow these younger boys all considerably shorter than myself in stature, not that it mattered to me, to accompany me in my beautiful white dress on this fine spring day to the Bundesbank Park. There were stops at the Trinkhalle 
as some of them wanted beer. And then someone said that we should go to a place where there was more to sample than just beer. This place was called Eschenheimer Tor and was also known as Shit Park. Due to the fact that Americans could go there and acquire most any mind-altering substance that they wanted to find. I did not really discover all of the details about the tour until later, so my posse and I arrived to find a large complement of Middle Eastern men selling something called hashish. We must have been a sight to see. I, in my white dress, followed by four younger boys that I was basically babysitting at this point, wandering through such a potentially dangerous area. Each one of us occasionally stopped to pull the other away from some treat being offered by eager hands. And yet, as pipes were offered, we managed to pass through quickly and unscathed by harm. The potentially ill-fated trip included several attempts to find the way to the Bundesbank Park that ended in frustration, failure, and long rides on the Strasse, a nickname that meant street that I used for the U-Bahn. During this time, some of the party were affected by consuming a little too much beer or sampling a little too much of the offerings of Eschenheimer Tor. The trip was beginning to feel like an epic, instead of something that should not have taken more than 40 minutes at best. After a good two hours of roaming around Frankfurt without success, at some point the youngest of the group, Fred, finally saw a familiar landmark. I know this is the way, he said with conviction, and so we all just followed him in a trance. Hallelujah, I thought to myself silently. We were tired, and by the time we reached the promised land, I seemed to be in the lead, being trailed by the four boys. We trudged around the pond on the pretty paved path and looked up to see it, there before us, almost glistening, beckoning us onward. It was the Bee Bank Hill and it was legendary. The invisible invitation to climb the gentle slope was extended by the natural beauty there. Three older boys were gathered at the top and watched curiously as we approached. I realized that I must have appeared a bit like Snow White with the four dwarves trailing just a bit behind me, missing three. Or I could have been an elven princess dressed in white from Middle-earth, with four hobbits bringing up the rear. One thing was certain. I was walking up that glowing, grassy, green hill to the promised land, and there were high school boys looking on in a kind of disbelief. This was obviously not something they saw every day. As I reached the top of the hill, the boys following me decided to kick off their shoes in unison 
and run back down the hill with squeals of glee and laughter. The collective mind thought it was a stellar idea to go wade into the pond on this glorious spring day. I declined their generous invitation and continued the next few yards up the hill to bask in the light of the sun as it filtered through the living emerald of the trees to rest upon me. I felt tired and slipped off my shoes, plunging my toes into the cool grass beneath my feet. All eyes were on me as I approached, paused, and sat down on the welcoming, soft, velvety green with a smile and a sigh. This spectacle was to the astonishment of the three that were there before me, given their expressions. And that is where I met him, in the light of day. Joshua, blue eyes electric, with an intensity that was unreal when he was looking at me. I remember the luminescence refracting through the leaves. I remember the luminescence refracting through the leaves as it shimmered overhead, emerging like a long-lost love poem from the Milky Way galaxy. And I... Well, I felt so alive and magical, almost dreamlike, when he smiled into laughter and said, Hey, how are you? I feel certain that, in the state that they were currently in, they wondered about the unusual image that myself and my crew compliment presented. His smile was engaging as he introduced his two companions, Gavin and Ben. I still felt an otherworldly quality to the meeting. Joshua told me that I looked familiar, and I knew that this was because I had seen him once before, after the first time here, on a different occasion. We had spoken briefly at a winter party in a field somewhere in Bodfilbo, our faces framed by firelight. Though this was the day that we connected completely, our eyes filled with the light that streamed down from above, we would know each other and love each other until the sounds of time ran out, or a father's transfer would take the other away to a new foreign land and a different set of people. This was the bittersweet play of military brats. But for now, he was right before my eyes and asked with a grin, So, who are your friends? I explained in brevity that we all had just come over from the middle school because the day was too beautiful not to have ventured there. As I sat on the hill that day, watching the sunlight glistening iridescently over the water of the pond, it lit up my soul, diminishing my troubles briefly and filling my heart with the possibility of hope.
with a sense of any kind of purpose. There was a feeling of welcoming relief in the appreciation coming from Joshua and friends. A glimmer of home swayed with the wonder of light dancing through the leaves of the trees. While a soft breeze caressed me, I thought to myself that maybe Frankfurt American High School would be better than the middle school at giving me people with whom I could resonate. So I traveled onward through time. And time, it did pass. The remainder of that school year was fleeting and completed itself through a series of events befitting the middle school culture that I had grown to silently loathe. I was cast in a school play as the lead for Carousel, due to my singing capabilities. But because of the conflict with the resident chorus teacher, two leads were cast, just in case I should get into any kind of trouble. He thought that I was undependable. My English teacher, Miss Cochran, fought for me to get the lead, as she was also a co-producer-director for the production. She recognized something in me and cut through the superfluous to reach into my talent and draw it out. She believed in me. I entered the Loyalty Day writing contest for the regional level of Dodds, Department of Defense Dependent Schools, Europe following a parent-teacher conference during which my mother revealed my secrets to Mrs. Cochran. Throughout my academic career, when asked to enter a writing contest, I subsequently won first or second place. I was asked once again to do it, so I wrote an essay and won first place, receiving a gold pen and pencil set along with a massive red hardbound Webster's Dictionary no doubt a gift from the universe to assist with my apparent spelling disability. Spelling was not my forte. Expressing the complexities of my heart and mind through written word was something that came naturally to me, so I didn't think anything of it. In New Orleans, when presented with the second-place award for the same contest, the World War II veteran did so with tears in his eyes. He was a complete stranger to me, and yet my words had moved him to tears. At the age of thirteen, I was stirred by his feelings, though I didn't quite understand why my words had touched him so deeply. It took a long time for me to understand that it was not just my words, rather, the spirit with which they were written, that evoked such feeling. My essay reflected on what it really meant to me to be a loyal American. I wrote about the freedom and ideals that are represented in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. According to those documents, we are all given inalienable rights by our Creator for life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. I described how we, as a country, were a refuge for those in the world that needed shelter and protection. Most importantly, I discussed that being free really meant that you have to be willing to stand up for human rights and the freedom of others based on common decency and morality, not political agenda. The decorated veteran's eyes shone with pride and compassion as he struggled to hold back a flood of feeling when giving me the award, saying, If it was up to me, you would have won first place. It was the first and last time that I ever saw him, though I have never forgotten it. That is the power of inspiration. We inspire each other. Mrs. Cochrane had the same kind of devotion to my talent, even though I did not comprehend it myself and remained somewhat oblivious to it for many decades. With junior high being what it was, the rumors flourished, and someone reported seeing me have a beer at a trinkala close to the school. This was a false report, as I was far too intelligent to be seen drinking at a trinkala close to the school, where I could be identified while taking part in an official school project. Mr. Siegfried demanded that I be removed as the lead and that the alternate step in for all the performances. He was a bit of a drama king, and he got his way. Mrs. Cochran found me in the hall and approached me with tears in her tired eyes, saying that she needed to talk with me in private. She told me the news and said that she had fought hard for me. I believed her, because she was my champion. She loved me, and I loved her. I took the news well, almost knowing without knowing that it would turn out the way that it did. My unerring sense of honor demanded that I do the right thing, even though wrong had been done to me. I decided to volunteer for the production, backstage, showing up for every rehearsal necessary. I encouraged the other lead, even doing her makeup on performance nights. I made sure that I was consistent and ever-present, offering help wherever needed, without being ostentatious about it. My impact was felt like moonlight at midnight, in a clear sky, without a display for personal recognition. Though I didn't seek it, many of the though I didn't seek it, many of the cast expressed their deep admiration, telling me that my actions had earned their respect. Making the best choice through heartache was reward enough in and of itself. Mrs. Cochran was proven right by this unexpected behavior on my part. I felt no need to redeem myself for my own sake, because I didn't care what other people thought of me. My desire was to show that her faith in me was well-placed.
and the lead very rightfully so given. This proved Mr. Siegfried wrong, and caused him to feel sorry for what he had done, by giving credence to aberrant childish rumors. It also demonstrated something that I had in plenty. Integrity and Humility I spent the summer working in my very first summer hire as an assistant to a female sergeant. Her name was Faye, and she was a non-commissioned officer in charge of orientation and processing for the incoming soldiers. On my very first day during our introduction, the expression of, Oh my God, washed over her face as she took in my appearance. I stood there dressed professionally in full hair and makeup, trying to make a good first impression, as she commenced an eye roll that said, You must be joking. I felt a bit awkward when she invited me into the office for training. Faye was concerned because nearly all the new recruits coming through for processing were young and male. She kept a very watchful eye on me, like a mother hen, and was highly protective. The first time that I walked through the long line of new arrivals to unlock the Idle Hour Theater, I was struck by the very silent attention being given to me. I felt something akin to respect. It was a feeling that I would be aware of again, in several different ways, throughout my life. I'm fairly sure that Faye threatened them with hellfire if they stepped out of line with me. Faye and I made it through that summer job together, unscathed, and I know she breathed a sigh of relief when she was no longer responsible for me. Bless her courage and conviction. By the time high school started, I was ready to make new friends and be reunited with Joshua. Being an occasional smoker, I went to the smoking area first. This was a place commandeered by the students in the Idle Hour parking lot, across from the steps, another big hangout in front of the main building of Frankfurt American High School. FAHS was a place where both American and international students came together in an effort to recreate a home-style American high school experience in Germany. We had our own American-style football team, cheerleaders, and a dance team, along with other various assorted confluations of teenage bodies, hearts, and minds. Our school mascot was, of course, the eagle. So I was an eagle by proximal identification. My classes were negligible to me. I continued to feel a deep sense of isolation. And the more that I learned, the less connected that I felt. As it turns out, I continued to experience the very real phenomenon known as culture shock, and it had the best of me. I was grappling with issues that were beyond my control on a grand scale, but not beyond my grasp or understanding. Because it was my nature, I began to empath deeply 
everything around me, both individually and globally. I sought solace in being with friends, others who had their own issues to deal with, some successfully and some not. Yet somehow, when we all came together, a kind of magic was created, where I felt a buffer from the harshness that I perceived to be the world. As fate would have it, I became a sort of newbie tag-along with Joshua and friends. I was invited to go with the group to all kinds of places, where I was aware of searching for someone someone that I had not yet met. The novelty of his identity didn't prevent me from the knowledge that I would feel a sense of completion when I did meet him. He was a mystery to me, someone that I knew only in dreams and daydreams and that place where you go so far away that your friends say, Wherever you just were, take me there with you. My visitations to this otherworldly place were visionary streams of love and beauty, hand-painted in pastels, and held seamlessly together by faith, hope, and trust. I trusted in my dreams and kept my faith in God and the angels, that somehow things were going to work out right in the end. As the autumn days cascaded together like falling leaves, spiraling in the wind, I felt a sense of fervent aliveness. In anticipation of something I did not know, the faintest glimmer of hope emerged from the dark night of my soul. This hope was fleeting as the dull gray Frankfurt sky opened up and poured rain down upon me over and over again. The rain clouds felt heavy and oppressive, day after day, reminding me of New Orleans that was left behind in tears. Although I seemed to be a mysterious, at times mischievous, fairy goddess to my friends, I myself did not always feel the magic of my own creation. Years later, Rock Johnson, a.k.a. Rockster, confessed to me that I was known as the goddess of blonde, while another friend of ours was known as the goddess of brunette. At the time, the confluence of energy that resulted in my existence was merely a reflection of my own state of being and nearly impossible for me to register. What I did feel instinctually was the way that my own state of being affected those around me. Interestingly, people's light-filled elixir responses to me became the way that I perceived them. I realized later that the way that I was perceived by others was because of the contents of my heart and soul and was the truest form of beauty. I've been told that my hair color changed 
more often than some people change their clothes. So how I became known as the goddess of blonde, I will never understand. I suppose my hair was a light brown or sandy blonde, as well as an interesting shade of green in the sunshine on any given day. However, sunshine was so rare that I didn't worry much about it seeming green. To prevent having dark roots when my hair grew out, I dyed it in ash color and thus sealed my fate to having brunette hair with a slightly noticeable green cast. As much as I seem to be the bringer of all good things to my friends and our gatherings, my home life was a different story. My relationship with my parents had begun to deteriorate further as I continued to use anger as a weapon to keep their lifeless relationship at bay. I felt that they were living a lie in their marriage, and it was ironic to me that I would hear so much about the Cold War going on in the outside world. The real Cold War was in my own home, between my parents, and it was just as devastating to their children. Malaya and I were silent witnesses to it for a long, long time. I became vocal about anything that they did to try to rein me in, as I was having none of it. I was sorry that Malaya, so young and innocent, had to witness these battles between myself and my parents, so I tried to keep them to a minimum. This resulted in my retreat to my room and away from the family, until some blow-up would occur and render my attempts to protect her from the anger useless. I took the blame and the shame onto myself to protect her from the toxicity inherent in their relationship. 